Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast. You know, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan. And you know what? I got to tell you guys, I am having so much fun recording this podcast doing all of the post-production, talking to all the wonderful people that I've talked to already and plan to talk to. This episode is no different. Um, But I do want to be a little bit frank because it has been a learning experience. Uh, I've been trying to put put things together as best I can. Of course, there's always going to be hiccups along the way. First three episodes, I'm hoping, were those hiccups, and I've figured stuff out. I want to first apologize and also thank the people, uh, apologize to and thank the people that uh, listened to the first uh, the first couple of main format episodes and 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 then also my uh, intro episode. It's really humbling uh, the amount of views and downloads and things. And of course, for for those of you who I cajoled into uh, listening, well, thank you as well. But anyways, I want to apologize and thank the people that listened to those episodes and and dealt with some of the audio issues that went went on in. Those episodes, uh, it, it, the the popcorn crackling, uh, I think I figured out what the issue was, combination computer resources and trying to modulate my voice as I'm recording. I think, I think it just wasn't working. So, you know, what you're listening to now is post-production making my voice sound good as opposed to while being recorded. So I'm hoping that's going to be the case. In addition to those changes, I have decided to keep looking for the services for remote interviews. This podcast is pretty much made possible by all of the remote recording services that exist. Without those uh, remote recording uh, programs and and services, you know, this podcast would probably be a little bit different. It'd probably be just me talking about films, and I mean, I'd be potentially bored with that. Uh, That's why I only did it for that one episode. But um, I think I may have found a a good service that is potentially going to be the service from now on. on. It's been a a bit of a slog trying to figure out what services I could use for, you know, minimal cost or or for free. Um, So I'm hoping that moving forward in episodes from now on are going to be sounding better because I, 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 you know, podcasts are all about the audio. And if the audio doesn't sound good, then the listeners aren't going to listen anymore because they're just going to be like, oh, this is another cinema psych podcast. And I'm going to crackle, crackle, crackle in my ear. Uh, I, I don't want that. And so I'm trying my best to make sure that that's not the experience that I leave everyone with. 
Alrighty. Now that I got that said, I mean, I've been I've been trying to get that um, handled and I, and I did want to say something in this episode. I know these episodes aren't serialized, but I did want to say something um, to you all. So now that I've got that out of the way, I would love to say if you like what you just heard, <laughs> if you like what you just heard, maybe um, give us a follow on social media. Uh Facebook, SinSciPod, and Twitter, SinSciPod. Both of those sins with a C, not an S. So C-I-N-P-S-Y-P-O-D for both Facebook and Twitter. Give us a like and a follow on those, and you'll know exactly when episodes go live. Uh, The episodes link to the main website, cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com, where the show notes and the transcription are available, including for this show. You can find them there. You can listen directly there. You can subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast feeder, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all them big ones. We got it all. Looking forward to it. So without further ado, you know, I said I was going to stop saying that, but you know what? I just said it. Without further ado, I said it again. We are going to get this show started. And you might notice something different about the audio bumper today. I'll let the bumper speak for itself. My guest host today is the one, the only, Jason Spiegelman. Jason is an associate professor of psychology at the Community College of Baltimore County, where he has been since 2003. He also taught at Towson University, the University of Maryland, and Stevenson University, and currently teaches as an adjunct at Harford Community College. Jason is the chair of the teaching division for the Eastern Psychological Association's annual conference and is on the board of directors of the Association of Faculties for the Advancement of Community College Teaching and is a regular presenter at regional and national teaching of psychology conferences. Jason lives in Pikesville, Maryland with his wife, Mitzi, and their three sons, Matthew, Eli, and Jonah. Jason, go ahead and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Very excited to be a part of the podcast. Jason, I am glad that you are with us today to talk about the film that you brought with you. But before we get into that, I I do want to ask you the questions that I've asked pretty much everyone we've had on the program. Um, First things first, why do you love film? What I really enjoy about film is probably not so much different than anybody else. The ability to really look at circumstances outside of reality and to be able to ponder situations that you're not going to come across in everyday life. Um, And in the classroom, what that allows me to do is give students sort of an analog to life where they can look at the experiences that we're talking about, the theories and uh, of psychology, and look for applications in a way that I don't really feel comfortable as their teacher sending them out into the world to actually you know, observe other people. So film provides that opportunity in, in my private life as well as in my uh, professional life. 
Excellent. That kind of goes into the next question I have is, you know, why do you combine film and psych in your teaching? And you kind of ask that. But so, in addition to that question, then, um, if you could uh, uh, tell us how you incorporate film in your classes, not just the why, which I think you just answered, but the how. Sure. Well, there's a number of different ways I do it. I'm, I'm a big fan of YouTube. Of course, everybody's a big fan of YouTube who teaches. And so I sort of keep a mental catalog of you know different movie scenes or, or television scenes or whatever that I think are going to really neatly demonstrate concepts. And you know I can pull them up before the class starts and have them queued up and ready to go. But the other way that I use it is the for introduction to psychology, which is sort of my bread and butter course, uh, the one that I teach the most. I typically will assign <clears throat> students a movie from the past you know, 20, 25 years, sometimes maybe a little more, but I try to keep it that current. And then I ask them to watch that movie through the eyes of a psychologist and to not focus on the entertainment value, but rather to do sort of a psychological deconstruction of the movie and to show me how they can see the theories actually at play. And so they're encouraged to look for three or four strong scenes in the movie that demonstrate psychology theories and then write about that. And again, this is the analog to sending them out into the real world and telling me how psychology was applied in their everyday lives. I let them get lost in the movie and do it there instead. Yeah, I think that's a, a fairly typical way to uh, add f film to anyone who might be thinking about adding film uh, to their psych classes, listening to this podcast. I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what I want to do with the film do i want to show it in class do i not want to show it in class like how do i how do i incorporate this so that's great uh my next question for you is what do you want your students and potentially other film enthusiasts to know about film and psych I think it's really simple. There is not a movie that has been made yet that cannot be absolutely torn apart for its psychology. It is pretty much everywhere. Now, I won't go too far into say in every scene and every character, but if one were to make that assertion, I don't think that I would take them down for it. Uh, um, it really gives you an opportunity to look at film through just a totally different lens. And... The interesting thing is to see students apply theories in ways that I would not have thought about. And that's probably my favorite part of reading these papers, that so often students will come up and they'll say, I applied this theory in this kind of way, and I'll be reading that, and I'll kind of talk to myself using four-letter language, and I'll say, I can't believe I never thought of that. That is absolutely brilliant. And so... It provides such a kind of robust opportunity for students to think creatively within the auspices of the course material that it's it's such a such a great medium that that's why it works so effectively. One other thing that I would probably mention is that the worse the movie you assign, the better the papers you're going to get. And I often put a couple of movies on my list for students that are absolutely horrible movies that probably should never have been made. And when I assign that movie, I'll tell them, I'm really sorry to assign you this, but trust me, you're going to write a great paper because this is an awful movie and you're not going to get lost in the entertainment value because there isn't any. And sure enough, every time I assign those really bad movies, I get the best papers from them. Oh, man, I need to figure out how to work the room in to one of my classes. 
because that is an awful movie. It's probably the most awful movie. No, I'm gonna I'm but, gonna challenge oh, you on that. It would that. be so much fun. I'm gonna challenge you, okay? If you really want the worst movie to assign, just look no further than um, Nicolas Cage and Ghost Rider, because they just don't get worse than that movie. Yeah, and it's it's such a great. Again, I'm going to use that word. It's such a great medium for the student to stop worrying about being entertained and just think about the psychology. And I assign it then, like I said, well, I they're not entertained. That's the problem. Well, that no, that's that's the benefit for them at least in that moment. So they 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 sometimes write really interesting papers from a horrible movie like that. Yeah, uh, I can I can imagine. Speaking of speaking of any good stories about film psych etc. from one of your classes. This uh, probably goes back uh, at least a decade, at least 10 years ago uh, at a school where I don't teach currently. Um, I always tell the students that they have the freedom in my class within this assignment to write the paper any way they want. They can be creative. In fact, I encourage them to be creative because I want them to have fun with it. And they can write the film, excuse me, they can write the paper from the perspective of a psychotherapist who's seeing one of the clients. They could be a lawyer who's prosecuting one of the characters. They could, um, they could really do anything they want with it. Um, and they get extra points for being creative. I had one student years ago who was, si- who was assigned the movie My Blue Heaven with Rick Moranis and Steve Martin. Mm. This student was an amateur, um, recording expert in his spare time <clears throat> he had a studio set up in his basement with some i guess pretty expensive equipment and he was also a a wannabe rap star so he wrote his paper as a rap song and instead of just <laughs> writing the rap and submitting it and let me tell you this was some gruesome awful rap okay but instead of just writing it and submitting it he then went down into his studio and he laid down a three or four track recording of his rap with background percussion and sound effects and instrumentation and he burned it onto a CD and turned that in along with a printed copy of the rap and the you know the quality of his analysis was probably a C at best I'm going to tell you that student got an A because that was above and beyond effort and creativity that I I could not get my mind wrapped around now do you still have the song to my great shame i did not keep it but boy do i wish i had because i would love to have that i I know i would love to have that when i retire someday but i don't that's something that you would you could play at your retirement you know absolutely lost out on that chance Um, so did he give it to you on a cd Yep, it's I'm that old. He actually burned it onto a CD and, and submitted the CD along with, like I said, a printed a hard copy of the rap that he printed on his uh, on his computer. No wonder you lost it because it was on a CD. That's exactly right. These days, he would just, just would have submitted it to my Google Drive, and it would be there forever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, Jason, what film do you have for us today? And before you say it, before you say it, if any eagle-eared, I don't know if that's a good one, eagle-owled, owl-eared, start again, listeners out there could tell I used a different bumper sound effect, and it tells us, it should tell you, which film is next. Jason, take it away. 
So I really wanted to come up with a film that challenges the viewer, uh, one that doesn't make it easy to access the material in just one viewing or two viewings, and one whose relevance to psychology is pretty clear. I like films that make you work for it. I don't like a film that just, just hands it to you on a platter. So based on those criteria, the film that I've chosen for us to discuss is Inception, directed by Christopher Nolan. Blom. That's my sound effect. That was not a bumper. So, yes, Inception with several famous people who would appear two years later in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, we will get into that in, in a little while. But before we get into any content, I want to give a broad spoiler warning to anyone listening who, just in case, hasn't seen the movie. Pause the podcast episode. Pause it. Just pause it. Go watch Inception and then come on back. Okay. I guarantee you will thank us. All right, so let's jump into the psych aspects, shall we, Jason? Sure. So I think the first I think the first one that we should jump into is the psych concept that is smacking you directly in the face as you watch the film, which is dreams. That's what the movie is about is dreams and we know a lot about dreams in that we don't know a lot about dreams (laughs) we know what we don't know about dreams i think is a good way to put it um the way that dreams are presented in the movie are quite a bit different from what we know about actual dreams so What do we dream about most of the time, Jason? Well, the research tells us that there are some very common themes. Uh, For both men and women, uh, the most common dream theme is the the idea of being chased or being pursued. Um, After that, we have some common dreams about flying, dreams sometimes about aggressive behavior, um, uh, certainly dreams about sexual circumstances, but also an awful lot of mundane dreams uh you know going shopping at the grocery store and deciding which bleach to buy um many of our dreams have you know a whole lot of nothing in them and that is fascinating when you think about all the mythology out there about dreams everybody thinks that we always dream about sex every night every time we always dream about shooting somebody in the face with a bazooka and as it turns out that's really not the case more often than than people would think yeah fantastical dreams as represented in the film, are more rare than than what people think and would think if they were to read, like you said, all of the mythology, right? So it's it's kind of like they're playing up the idea of the mundacity of dreams to be something that they're not. Of course, it's film. They have to make it enjoyable because if it was you know, going to your office job and having a dream about you know, being in an office, well, that sounds awful. I would not watch that movie. I don't think I'd I'd buy a ticket to watch a dream about sharpening pencils. But, you know, maybe, but probably not. So that's one aspect of the film, I think, right off the bat, that we can dispel. Uh, The idea that the dreams that are represented in 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 the film are a bit more fantastical than one might actually experience. But there are a couple of features of the of the film that I, I do want to highlight. And the first one is 
lucid dreaming. So the idea with lucid dreaming is that with some practice, you can remember your dreams a little bit better and have a little bit more control within them. But it's not as it's not as though you can do everything from start to finish. It's more or less I'm going to have a better sense of the dream from, you know, this part of the night versus this part of the night. Um, and I, I, I know I am dreaming at this point, I think, is what we know about lucid dreaming. Would you agree with that assessment, Jason? Yeah. And when my students <clears throat> ask me about lucid dreaming, they will typically want to know exactly what it means because some of them have some experience with it. <clears throat> and what I'll tell them is lucid dreaming really comes in two levels, at least as I understand it. The first level is in the dream, you become aware that you are dreaming. And so at that moment, mm -hmm. you can distinguish that it's not real. But the second level, and probably the more advanced level of lucid dreaming, is once you become aware of it, then you can control the story to some extent, ranging from minimal control to absolute control over the actual story of your dream. Speaking personally, I've had lucid dreams where I became aware that it wasn't real. I've never been able to control uh, my dream stories. Uh, some of my students have told me that they can, and they can do it on a regular basis. So I think that when I think lucid dreaming, I think those two sort of levels, being aware of a dream and then being able to control within the dream. Indeed. The other aspect of the dreaming portrayed in the film is that uh, they, go, they do dreams within dreams. So the dreamer then goes to sleep to dream, and these are levels of a dream. And there's logic within the film dis described by the uh, uh, characters that it's very difficult to dream within a dream within a dream. Um, going down all those levels, if you uh, you can get lost, so to speak. And they had to use heavy sedation in order to do that kind of thing. So if they died, then they wouldn't just wake up as is just a regular dream. Going from dream back to reality. And I think... Going back to our earlier point with um, really the mundacity of dreams, it's extremely rare for dreams to be the, the, the complexity that is expressed in the movie, that's portrayed in the movie. And then there's this one last bit about the dreaming in the movie, and I'm going to play a clip after I describe it, is um, when uh, the two characters... Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and Ariadne, played by Ellen Page, uh, is explaining uh, how the dream logic works in the film. And you get a sense that they are sharing a dream. And at the end of this clip, you'll hear Arthur, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, say, uh, talk about dream sharing. And it was developed by the military for soldiers to uh, fight each other without like actually harming each other. They could, you know, murder and shoot and stab uh, their fellow uh, soldiers and just wake up when they died. Kind of like a video game almost. And I looked this up because I was like, well, okay, he said the military, so I'm going to go look it up anyways because I think it's important to know 
if this is actually real. And I didn't find any evidence about the military trying to do anything like this. So that was probably made up for the film, you know, screenwriters having that liberty. But as far as dream sharing goes, I couldn't find any actual empirical evidence that it exists. There's only anecdotal evidence that it exists. And this anecdotal evidence is on par with the anecdotal reports associated with hypnosis. So it's very difficult to trust these uh, reports. So I'm going to give my uh, verdict and say that dream sharing, not a thing made up for the film. (laughs) So let me go ahead and play that clip for you all, and then we'll come back to it. They say we only use a fraction of our brain's true potential. Now, that's when we're awake. When we're asleep, our mind can do almost anything. Such as? Imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously. And our mind does this so well that we don't even know what's happening. That allows us to get right in the middle of that process. How? By taking over the creating part. Now this is where I need you. You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream and they fill it with their subconscious. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it feels real it's why the military developed dream sharing it was a training program for soldiers to shoot and stab and strangle each other and then wake up how did architects become involved someone had to design the dreams right why don't you give us another five minutes five minutes what we were talking for like at least an hour in a dream your mind functions more quickly therefore Time seems to feel more slow. Five minutes in the real world gives you an hour in the dream. Why don't you see what you can get up to in five minutes? 
I also want to mention, uh, now that we've come back from the clip, uh, that uh, Cobb mentions the 10% of the brain myth. Did you catch that, Jason? Makes my brain all not, all 100% of it hurt. Well, it's okay. 100% of it's hurting, but you only use 10%, so that 90 of that is just a waste, I guess. Damn it. Yeah, at least we're not um, talking Jason, about the movie ha- Lucy, which took the 10% myth and just ran with it. Oh my goodness. Okay, don't get me started on that one. We're, right? we're not here to talk about Lucy. Uh, so you had a, a general point, Jason, about uh, how this relates to filmmaking. You want to ex- uh, explain that to the listeners? Sure. <clears throat> but I also want to point out at the beginning here, a lot of these things that we're talking about today, I don't want to represent them as my own analyses. Some of them, you know, were my own brain children, but um, did a lot of reading about what other people had to say about the movie. So I just want to put out there that these are analyses that many have come up with and um, various sources for these particular points. And and many, including uh, the director, Christopher Nolan, have suggested that the movie itself is just an analog for actual uh, actual dreams but um that the 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 dreams in the movie represent the experience of going to a movie so in the movie they go they have their dreams and then we all go see the movie to see this happen what's the point here you go to a movie theater and the moment the lights go down and the movie begins we suspend reality we accept what's happening with very little question and we become led by the director and the actors we start in the middle of some story we do not think to question how we got there and only later when we think about the movie and perhaps watch it again might we start to question the things that we saw and that's exactly what um, Dom tells us, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character tells us, a dream is like it's only when we wake up that we realize that something in the dream was incorrect. And in the clip that we just listened to, he tells us how we can never really remember how the beginning of the dream started. We just end up somewhere in it, and we just accept that as as reality. And this is not mm-hmm. uncommon. I mean, movies movies do this in any number of ways. And the example that I tend to use is, isn't it interesting that every movie about aliens, for example, they always speak English? Uh, one, one of my favorite examples, it doesn't require uh, people not of this earth, was a movie with uh, Harrison Ford years ago called uh, The Widowmaker or something like that. And he played a Russian submarine commander. And it was really interesting to me how everybody aboard this Russian nuclear submarine spoke perfect English. And as a movie goer. Well, okay. All right. All right. I have a better one for you. Oh, and that is Sean Connery in The Hunt for Red October. Of course. Why does he speak perfect, Eng- uh, perfect English, right? But, you know, the with- a Scottish accent. Uh, with a Scottish accent, yes. Yeah. So, so the point is, um, why why don't we question that? And we don't question that because we we make the decision not to when we go to a movie. We just accept the fact that there's going to be an alternate reality and, and we're a part of it. And the dream is exactly the same way. So I think Nolan's purpose, at least part of his purpose in making this movie, is to show us that dreams and movies are are very much analogous to each other. Yeah, that is, I think, one of the best points that you brought to uh, our note sharing, um, our note sharing session here, because and 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 I wanted you to mention it right up at the top because I think it influences the rest of the analysis in 
the in the film with respect to the uh, other psych concepts that we are going to explore okay so as we move down into the dream within a dream jason you had some interesting wordplay do you want to describe the uh, words used purposefully in the film absolutely um as I always tell my students, uh, I'm a big fan of words. If I was not in uh, the field that I'm in, I probably would have been a linguist of some sort. And so I use that in any number of ways in my classroom, uh, most notably when we come across unfamiliar terminology that the students just don't know. I always tell them, if there's a word that you don't understand, let's break that word down and see what it means. Uh, this afternoon, I was teaching about uh, binocular depth cues, and I said to the student, take the word apart. Bi means two, ocular means eyes, and there you go. Um, so there are several things that I think are, are, are interesting in this regard. The first is just the name of the movie. The use of the term inception is interesting to me because it is so close to its sister term conception. Now, why does this matter? Well, the word conception, the prefix is con, uh, and that translates as with. And the term conception typically refers to creating something with someone else, most commonly used around a pregnancy. Uh, inception, on the other hand, has a different prefix. It does not have that shared component to it, but its relationship to conception is pretty clear. In both, there is a proverbial seed that is being planted, and even Cobb notes in the movie that the seed they plant in a person's mind will grow to consume them. Um, I think I got those words pretty close to what Cobb says, and in mm -hmm. the movie, they are inserting a thought into somebody's dreams. Well, when we speak about somebody becoming pregnant, we sometimes talk about you know planting a seed that grows into life, and there's a process taking place there. But what Dom and his team do occurs without consent in a very intrusive, and if you think about it, a rather disturbing manner. And that was one thing I think linguistically was very interesting to me. Yeah, and I think uh, a perfect scene that represents especially your last point there about the without consent and intrusive, rather disturbing manner, is the initial scene where Cobb, Arthur, and um, Ken Watanabe's character, Saito, are introduced, and Cobb explains what the process of extraction is. So I'm going to go ahead and play that clip for you all. What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm. Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. Right in there somewhere. Well, someone like you just still. Yes, in the dream state, your conscious defenses are lowered and it makes your thoughts vulnerable to theft. It's called extraction. Mr. Saito, we can train your subconscious to defend itself from even the most skilled extractor. How can I do that? Because I am the most skilled extractor. I know how to search your mind and find your secrets. I know the tricks and I can teach them to you so that even when you're asleep, your defense is never down. Look, if you want my help, you're going to have to be completely open with me. I need to know my way around your thoughts better than your wife, better than your therapist, better than anyone. 
If this is a dream and you have a safe full of secrets, I need to know what's in that safe. In order for this all to work, you need to completely let me in. Enjoy your evening, gentlemen. As I consider your proposal. So, one of the things that is discussed in that clip is um, um, talked about in that clip is uh, what the nature of the film is going to be. Okay, we Saito wants to plant an idea inside one of his uh, corporate rivals. Okay, Arthur's like, you know what? This doesn't work, and this is a great scene in uh it's a great later scene where arthur who is basically the straight man of the film um but has a great action scene fighting in zero g where he does uh, there's a great stunts i might add yes he does he does and he did them great it looks fantastic Really does. Um, but there's a great uh, mention of Dan Wegner's work on, on the ironic processing effect. He asks Saito, hey, if I say to you, don't think of a white elephant, all you're going to think about is a white elephant. And so that's ironic processing at its heart. Um, and I think that's why he's so against this idea of Inception, because you can't tell somebody to not think about something and watch them not do it. Uh, so this can also come back to a thing that I talk about in in memory in my cognitive psych classes is that this might reflect uh, source monitoring errors and we have an idea and we're like, huh, where did I come up with that idea? I must have come up with it on my own. I don't know if I heard it anywhere. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But I said the idea, so it's mine now. And that's what at least Cobb's team attempts to do, is plant an idea in somebody's head, and they have no idea the source of the information. And so it's classic source monitoring errors, um, because they're using sleep as the immediate incubator for the idea plant and i think that is also part of the intrusive nature of it because not only are they implanting the idea as you said jason like a seed that will consume the person but they'll have no recollection of where the idea came from right and the default for somebody if they don't know that the idea came from somebody else would be to just assume that it came from within you and I think within the film, the plot, that is the point. We want to put it in in such a way that they have to believe it came from them. Hence the idea that Inception, which of course is a fictitious process, is so darn difficult to do. And Arthur says it's not possible. And of course, DiCaprio tells us it is possible. And he has other information that lets him be aware of that. Right. Uh, 100% agree. So you had other... Um so we did we did the title of the film. What about the character names and the wordplay with the characters? So there's an awful lot of wordplay with the characters that that I, I I looked into, and some of this came from me, and some of it came from other sources. Once again, so if we look at the main characters' names and only examine the first letters of their names, 
and we look at the main characters in the following sequence, something interesting happens. So the, the main characters and perhaps secondary characters are Dom or Dominic, Robert, Eames, spelled E-A-M-E-S, Arthur, Mal, Saito, and then we have Peter, Ariadne, and Yusuf. And if we take the first letter of those names in that order, we get the words dreams pay, D-R-E-A-M-S-P-A-Y. And isn't that exactly what the occupation of this team is? They work with dreams for profit. Dreams pay, baby. Dreams pay. So from there, we move on to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, whose name, his full name is Dominic Cobb, but they only ever call him Dom or Cobb. In fact, the only ones who call him Dom are his late wife and his father. And his name is meaningful in two ways. First is Dom, which translates to the word home in several different languages. Um, And it's the same as the root of the word domestic or the word domicile. And what is Dom doing in the movie? Anything he can to get home. I won't waste your time with all the backstory. You can watch the movie. Um, But that's that's what he does. That's his purpose is to get home. His last name, a little bit more interesting, Cobb, is a a nod to Henry Cobb, an American architect who's known for his design of skyscrapers. And many of the scenes in the movie are dominated by this sort of architecture, most notably when Dom and Maul are in limbo, right? The primary architecture of their existence is these enormous skyscrapers that you can see all around them uh, any number of times. I did not pick up on this. I didn't actually know who Henry Cobb was, but this is a great find uh, because, yeah, you can see all of the skyscrapers in the limbo, uh, which is pretty damn cool. Um, uh, Nolan snuck that one by me. I guess you got to know famous architecture, uh, American architects for that. It's it's not my it's not my area of expertise (laughs) in any imagination. Mine either, but I'm really good with the Google machine. Okay, um, the next character Indeed. is is Yusuf. And Yusuf's character, th- this is one that uh, I was familiar with, takes his name from a derivation of the word Joseph, which is a very famous Bible story. Uh, anyone's ever seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? And of course, Joseph's... Uh, uh, Joseph's legend is his ability to interpret dreams. Now, in this movie, the Yusuf character is less involved in the actual dream work and more of the sedation that allows for the dreams, but I do think it's notable that they're taking a derivation of a name from a different dream-related story. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, he's he's more of a minor character anyways, so I'm not surprised they didn't explore that more. Tom Hardy's character is named Eames, again, spelled E-A-M-E-S, and with a little derivation, um, it's just not a coincidence to me that if we take the word dreams and strategically add a space, we would have Dr. Eames. Now, we're not given any backstory about uh, this Eames character, but he's certainly a master expert of the manipulation of dreams, a doctor of sorts, right? So is he... Dr. Eames, meaning dreams, and I think that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah, he uh, he's the one who uh, impersonates Tom Berenger's character, Robert. Wait, uh, did Peter. I get that one right? Peter. Peter, sorry. Yeah, that's he, okay. he impersonates Peter in the dream in order to get buy-in from Robert, who is played by um, Killian Murphy. 
I just think it's interesting that they they have a movie about dreams and one of the characters' names was Eames. Personally, I think they kind of uh, dropped the ball on that one. It would have been better to go in a different direction, but that's, you know, he's the director and I'm no one. Okay, now the one that I think is... They had to smack you in the face. They had to smack you in the face on a couple of things. Well, they do that. Um, uh, Very briefly, the character um, Mal, who is Dom's late wife... um, it's interesting because this word mal, M-A-L, means bad in many languages, Spanish as, a, as an example, and we are set to see her as the villain, and we're set to see her as the villain from a very early scene. You may remember in the very first scene, she betrays Dom, and she shoots Arthur in the kneecap, which, by the way, was a really cool scene, um, and throughout the movie, she is a projection of his subconscious that tends to screw everything up so we are we are led down the road of hating her right she is a bad person but why is that isn't she in fact the biggest victim in the movie yes i am with you on the biggest victim so the way that i read this was uh and while i was watching the film last week was when we first learn about Mal and what uh, she and and Dom do in Limbo. They spend uh, quite a many decade um, just playing around in the deepest cavern of dream space. But very little time has passed in the real world. And when Dom first tells the story of what led to Mal's death, he explains that she planted an idea in her own mind that the real world wasn't real and she locked it away. But then later in the film, like maybe a good hour, maybe maybe about 45 minutes or so, um, we find out that Cobb is actually kind of lying about that. And he reveals this truth to Ariadne when kind of stuff has hit the fan. Um, And he says, well, I kind of planted the idea that uh, the real world wasn't real. And Ariadne just looks at him in horror. And is just like, what did you do? And so that means that Mal is... 100% the victim, okay? And she is probably responding. We're going to get a little more into this in a minute, but she is probably responding as Dom's conscience because he wronged her, wronged her deeply. No, I think that that's absolutely accurate. And... Um, the question, as you mentioned, we're going to get into it shortly, is is why do we empathize so strongly with Dom? But let's let's put that on hold for just a moment. Um, while we're talking about names, there's one more. To me, the most fascinating name is um, that of Ellen Page's character Ariadne. Now, it's pretty easy to recognize that character from Greek mythology, if, if you've studied it at all, as the 
uh, princess uh, from Crete who knew the labyrinth of the underworld uh, uh, in in Hades underworld and and the labyrinth of the Minotaur, and Ariadne is the one who guided Theseus through that labyrinth and saved uh, him from the Minotaur in at least one of the many different versions of the story. But I think there's there's more there, much more. Ariadne's the Greek name, the Roman counterpart in some versions, is called um, Libera or Libera, depending on the pronunciation. And that, of course, is the root of the word liberate. And what does Ariadne do in the movie? She is the essential character to freeing or liberating Dom from the influence of Mal in his subconscious. And it's only after he has that sort of confessional moment where, as you say, he absolutely horrified Ariadne with what he had done, that she starts to understand the true nature of his labyrinth, right, of what's going on deep down inside of him. And then she becomes essential to his ability to get freed from that. And there's sort of an interesting role reversal that happens at different points in the movie. Early in the movie, when Dom and Ariadne are first introduced and he's testing her, um, he asks her to draw mazes uh, in just a couple of moments that he would not be able to solve and, and she can't do it. And then he he challenges her a little more and she snatches the book out of his hand and creates this beautiful maze that he can't solve. And then he you know, kicks it up, Notch as Emerald would say, and he teaches her how to create labyrinths within dreams as she is the architect of the dreams. So at first she's creating the labyrinth. Right. And then he asks her to do it on the higher level and then he hires her. And then later she becomes responsible for leading him through that labyrinth that she creates and later out of the labyrinth that he made many years ago. So that character and the relationship to some some mythological stories, I think, is, is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I did not catch Ariadne. Uh, as a Greek character, I will be the first to admit that um, that one went by me on uh, as well. So, oh well. But uh, she is a great character. She's a great character, and um, she plays the moral uh, moral compass for a good portion of the characters, but mostly dumb, as you mentioned, right? And so that leads me into the bit that you wanted to put on hold for just a second, and that is, why should we root for Dom if he's such a jerk? I mean, he, he immediately became a jerk to Ariadne, and he's like, nah, I solved your, your, your maze. I'm going to stop talking to you if you can't fix this. You know, why do we care about him? Well, I mean, this is the idea of moral relativism that you and I discussed when we were kind of sharing notes ahead of time. And it, it really does bring us to the question of who is the real protagonist in the movie and who is the real antagonist. I mentioned earlier um, that Mal is set up for us to be the antagonist. And do we just accept that because that's what the director wants us to accept? And, and I think the answer is yes. And again, it's not until later that we go back and think about it that we realize that there's something wrong there. Uh, we're drawn to feel empathy and even sympathy for Dom. Um, but let's not forget that he's basically a thief who's now going to violate a person all for money and for his own interests. And so then the real question is, why do we feel sorry for him? Why do we cheer for him to get home? Um, we're led to believe that he didn't really kill Maul, and he may not have pushed her off the ledge, but he was directly responsible for her death. 
there was a case recently where not in a movie, but in real life where a teenage girl was convicted for contributing to her boyfriend's suicide by encouraging him to do it. So is, is Dom really innocent? And we accept that he is because he didn't push her off the ledge and because he's hurting over her death, but we don't even question that during the movie. So what are the factors there that cause us to sort of take leave of a real, a real moral analysis and see him as not someone we should be cheering for? If we're going to talk about moral relativism, why are we on Saito's side? Why do we want his inception to work? He's basically suggesting, um, well, he's all about corporate espionage of the highest degree, and he tells us that he wants to get into the brain of his main competitor and essentially cause that guy to, to shutter his own company, and he says it's for the good of humanity, and we just accept that. And the question, of course, is why do we just accept that? And again, we are in a dream. It's a movie, but it's a dream, and we accept the context in which we find ourselves, and we don't question it while it's happening. Yeah, uh, you know, we accept it because bang, bang, shoot them up. Explosions. Gunfights. Good-looking you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. We accept it because he's Good attractive. He, he distracts you. And you're like, I will do anything for you. I apologize. I don't know why I'm apologizing to Leo, but I apologize. <laughs> I think you're going to hurt his feelings. I know. I'm sure he'll be fine with all swimming in all of his money. Okay, so there's a white elephant in the room that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> see what I did? See what I do there? I just I connect things from earlier in the episode. There's a white elephant in this room. Wow. He's got a name. He's got a name. Wow. Are What's you going to mention the name, or am I going to mention the name? Well, I'll let you mention the name so people can get mad at you. Well, they all know the name. I just call him the F word. Indeed. So we, you know. It, we're going to talk about Freud and we have to talk about Freud because if we don't talk about Freud, we're pretty much not doing our job here, but let's just, let's just acknowledge <laughs> from the beginning that if we talk about Freud, some of your listeners are going to roll their eyes so hard that they're going to need a chiropractor. And that's, that's just the way it is. And, and I get that. And, and I would just say the same thing before we get into it, that I tell every one of my students, I'm not telling you whether I believe Freud. I'm not telling you whether I hate Freud. I'm going to present it to you and let you make up your own mind. But there is literally <laughs> so much Freud in the film that if we were to go through this entire conversation, not mention it, we would not be doing our jobs. Yeah. He, um, I mean, this is going to be one of the things in a movie about dreams. Because Freud is so well known by uh, non psychological scientists, I mean, he is in he is he is entranced. His work has entranced the lay public regarding uh, psychopathology, psychotherapy, and most notably the subconscious mind. Right and his id ego and super ego, and I think you had um, a couple of points about who is who in and that, um, and so I'll let you mention that in just a second. But 
I mean, it's throughout the movie, and it's... I mean, you have to accept that Christopher Nolan knew about that when he was uh, in the process of writing this film. Uh, so, it, it's not surprising that the guy who wrote a book about dreams at the turn of the 20th century... Uh, so, there's literally so much stuff in the film. Like, it's hard to pinpoint exact things. I mentioned that I think that Mal is Dom's subconscious conscience. Like, you did this bad thing and, you know, I'm going to try to mess your stuff up because you really need a reality check, sir. There's a bit of a pun for you. Um, But there are certain notes and lines throughout the film that uh, just draw directly from Freudian theory. So the idea that the third level of the dream heist is 100% emotion-driven. Like, it's ruled by emotion. There's no logic. This is when they're at the um, Snow Chalet Castle uh, Japanese building. Uh, is ruled in 100% by emotion, and so that's the only way you can get through to uh, Robert, in this case, is by his emotions not appealing to his sense of logic. And then even further down in um, the dream space is limbo, which is unstructured dream space. It's essentially limitless subconscious, and that was Freud's idea of what the subconscious could actually be. It's just vast, uh, unused, and untapped, uh, I, I guess we'll say, mind energy, right? Sure. And, you know, there's other parts of it as well. Um, <clears throat> there's some of that are rather humorous. I mean, when we talk about dream interpretation and, you know, latent and manifest content of dreams, and again, folks, please stop rolling your eyes at me. It's not my theory. Um, we always talk about fixed symbols. And then we have this movie where when they go into a dream, there's this gigantic train plowing its way through the street, knocking everything out of the way. And uh, I'm sorry, you really just can't get over the fact that Nolan put a gigantic metal penis driving down the street of their dreamscape. And it's it's really kind of hysterical when you think about it in those terms. I mean, even the conversation with guns uh, between Eames and Arthur, don't be afraid to dream a little big, darling. And he <laughs> takes out a freaking uh, grenade launcher, you know grow your penis how about you know so yeah there's just literal stuff but you had uh you also had ideas about um for the id ego and super ego which characters represent what in the film i remember uh, when we discussed it i talked about um ariadne as the super ego um she is the one who yeah uh, who who really is that trying to be that moral center um and as you mentioned, she, she's horrified by um, what Dom has done in the past, and she wants to uh, she wants to be, you know, good. She wants to be reasonable. But I think later on in the film, she may actually morph into a bit of ego, 
um, again, in Freudian theory, where she recognizes that in order to be moral, they're going to have to be immoral for a little while. And she's sort of balancing that id superego uh, problem, especially when they're sort of stuck in, I think it was the second level of the dream, um, where she said, we're going to have to go deeper in order to be able to come back up. So her character um, really undergoes some some pretty interesting transitions, a la this theory, if you buy any of this. And if you don't, well, right. that's okay, too. She still did a great job acting. <laughs> Indeed. So, I mean, we could have spent the entire episode talking about Freud. I think most people would have turned uh, the episode off at that point. Or maybe you're a Freud fan. I don't know. Uh, I think you can kind of tell where we're sitting on this one. Uh, but to kind of round out the philosophical punch of the film, which is also essentially a psychological question. I think it's both philosophical and psychological about what is real. Jason, what were your thoughts about that really difficult question? Well, I mean, smarter people than I have pondered that for many millennia, so I don't pretend to to be able to do it justice. But the question of what is real is really, see what I did there, where we could spend the entire talk if we had wanted to. And in this regard, Inception is really, in my opinion, on some levels, a multi-layered nod to the Wachowski siblings' uh, Matrix movies. Um, particularly the first Matrix movie. Remember, in that um, in 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 that movie, as within this one, in order to get into the reality place, uh, excuse me, in order to get into the the altered reality place, they have to get jacked in. In the Matrix, they get stabbed in the back of the neck, which to this day is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a movie, right? And in Inception, they get jacked in through IV sedatives using some machine that they never really explained to us how it works. And in both cases, they have to sleep in order to wake up. In fact, in Inception, in the caverns of Yusuf's labs, the elder gentleman suggests that they go to sleep in order to wake up in those words or some words like that. Um, again, looking at both movies in both cases, there are rather involved narratives at one point or another about what is real. You'll remember the, uh, the Morpheus character. Um, how do we know what's real? Uh, what do we accept as real? Uh, remember the Matrix line about there is no spoon, which to this day, I still don't know what that was supposed to mean, but it's a question of code. reality. I, I know it's code, but it's code for what? And, and I don't care. Um, in both movies, right, once a person has experienced the altered reality, they cannot continue to exist separate from it. In The Matrix, there's a line about freeing a person um, after a certain age. They say we never free somebody after a certain age because the mind cannot accept it. And in Inception, Cobb speaks about how Ariadne will come back to their laboratory even after she leaves in anger because the real world just won't be enough for her now. And and therein we have the, the similarity. You mentioned earlier uh, Christopher Nolan and Tom Hardy collaborated uh, later in The Dark Knight Rises um, where Hardy plays the Bane character. And there were very salient themes of challenging reality. Bane's I am character, Gotham's Reckoning. 
Yeah, don't ever do that again. Um, Bane's character <laughs> challenges the people of Gotham to question the lives that they've been living. And, and of course, he has his, his horrible criminal motives, but there it is. So, you know, we see this across many different movies, and I think that um, it, it is a theme so often because it is so fascinating. If we, if we move from there to some specific psychology, and we sort of connect them. Didn't Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis give us an entire systems of psychotherapy based on the notion that what happens to us is less important than what we think about what happens to us? Uh, and the the notion of cognitive restructuring as a therapeutic as a therapeutic technique and all of its variations speaks directly to the relative and subjective nature of reality rather than a singular objective truth. Uh, to which we should all subscribe and which we should all accept at any given moment. That is uh, very fantastic, I will say, because it's not my area of expertise, psychotherapy, and so I didn't honestly did not know about the Beck and Ellis stuff. I mean, I know who those people are, but I didn't know what the idea of this cognitive restructuring was in the sense that you just represented it as and i think that fits with what i say to my intro psych uh students my cognitive psych students my research method students my sensation and perception students that we have this notion that science is trying to describe an objective reality but we all exist and experience reality in an adjacent way because of our perceptual systems. We don't experience the world uh, as automatons. We experience it with all of the uh, knowledge and experience we've had thus far, which makes us reality adjacent. Not Jason, adjacent. Okay. And I ask them very pointedly, how many reality-adjacent understandings would we need in order to achieve objective reality? And they stare at me for a little bit, and they're like, what What kind of question are you asking? Are you on drugs right now, Dr. Swan? You have no idea and what that to them, meant, I say, no, I'm... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> right. And I say, uh, you know, think about, it for a, think about it for a second. How many would you need to get that objective reality and it dawns on them and they're like oh yeah you know what infinite i'm like yeah it would take an infinite amount of subjective realities to reach the uh, objective reality and that's you know essentially what we're trying to do as scientists um and trying to and those of us who do the science versus those and and those of us who who explain the science um we try to express ideas uh this way and i think that's a great that's a great comment so the um the the, the really the main thing that people are going to come away from inception with is is the unanswered and perhaps unanswerable question did the top keep spinning right did the top keep spinning or did it topple over? And obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know that we do not have an answer. Uh, in interviews, Christopher Nolan has specifically refused to answer. And we're left to decide for ourselves if Cobb is awake or if Cobb is asleep. And what I think is far more interesting than the answer to that question 
is the fact that he seems in the last moments of the movie to no longer care. He decides that he just doesn't care anymore. He's back with his children, and he leaves the top before it does or does not topple. So the question which I can't But I have to stop you, Jason. I have to stop you. Go ahead. Which camp are you in? Does it fall? Or does it keep spinning? Why, why, why do you hurt me, sir? Why do you hurt me? I need to know. I need to know. It's I, a simple I am dichotomous camp, choice. I am of the camp that it it does not uh, it does it does not topple. I think it keeps spinning, and I think he's dreaming. Aha. Okay. Well, I'll let you continue your point, but I have a counterpoint to you, sir. I want to hear your counterpoint. So. Uh, again, he's back. You know, why does he no longer seem to care? He's back with his children, and um, why isn't he interested in knowing? Throughout the entire movie, every time he spun the top, he waited and did or did not. Uh, it always fell, and in some cases, he even had a gun pointed at his head. He was so um, so entrenched with knowing that he was in reality that if he wasn't, he was going to kill himself in the dream to wake himself up. Is it because he's finally free of Maul? Because Ariadne helped him escape that labyrinth, and now he can accept a dream world again where Maul won't be there to mess it up. Has he accepted that he can never have what he wants in reality, so he's decided to descend back down into limbo? Is this related to reality testing? Um, the reality testing or lack thereof of a person suffering from schizophrenia. A psychotic individual typically does not accept that their delusions are not real, forgive the double negative, because they are real to them. Okay, And there are, of course, exceptions, but getting people to challenge their own realities is extraordinarily difficult. The movie A Beautiful Mind about John Nash did very little to help with the situation because it fictitiously suggested that Nash could now recognize and simply disregard his illusions, his delusions any time that he wanted. And, and that's, that's just not what happened with John Nash. There was a very small piece of that that was real. Um, but that aside, can we try to use this movie to understand how one advances or regresses into psychosis? Um, so those are some interesting points um, that, that are raised for me when we don't see the top uh, fall over or continue spinning. Those are some good points. I will grant you them, but I do have, like I said, a counterpoint to whether the top uh, doesn't fall versus keep, or keep spinning versus falls, you know, wobbles down and, and, and falls over and stops spinning. Now, first, the top isn't Cobb's or Dom's totem. The totem are these things that uh, uh, each dreamer has to make sh- to make sure that they are in the real world. And, and as you mentioned, you know, he would, you know, possibly shoot himself in the head uh, to see whether or not he was in the real world. And and uh, they explain the rules about only the person uh, knowing about the top itself or excuse me, the totem itself can touch it. Okay, and I think it's very important to know that the top isn't his totem. So actually, the fact that it keeps that that we are cut off from the uh, final answer doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter because it's not his totem. 
one filmmaking uh i don't know, i guess i i'll guess i'll call it a little detail that um somebody much smarter than me on youtube noted was that we uh get to see a small little detail uh on Cobb's character on his person in a dream versus not in a dream so when he's dreaming he wears a wedding ring he wears his wedding ring when he's not dreaming or at least in the situations where we are told that it's not a dream he does not have his wedding ring on so whether this is his totem is entirely up for debate because nothing is said about his wedding ring at all throughout the film but it is really indicative of how the movie sets up dream versus not dream. And I, uh, I believe he is not wearing his wedding ring in the final scene when he sees his kids. So the real question then is, is it possible for somebody in the movie, and, and we're not going to know the answer, is it possible for somebody in the movie to have a totem that they don't know is a totem? And the reason why I don't, I don't agree with your explanation, with your counterpoint, is he clearly uses the totem as the top. Okay, And I agree with, I think you said that the top was Maul's totem before she died, and now it's his, uh, right. and he uses it. Um, we don't know the rules of this fictitious circumstance, if one person can ingest another person's totem or not. We don't know if a person can have a totem of which they are not consciously aware, though everything in the movie speaks about conscious and subconscious and unconscious recognition, so that's certainly possible. Um, we don't know if, in fact, the top is... Sorry, is it possible for somebody to have multiple totems? Um, could both be a totem? I don't know. And if so, what happens if the totems uh, are not consistent with each other? Um, if he ingested Maul's totem and the top is his totem, does he also therefore ingest her inability to distinguish real from the dream? I, I don't know. Um and we can speculate, but I think your points are very well made. Um, I don't agree with the idea that the ring is his totem, but I think it's certainly a defendable position. Well, I'm not saying that the ring is his totem. I'm just saying that uh, it's quite peculiar that uh, it's on his finger in certain places and not on his finger in other places. Sure, I'm just, I'll buy that. You know, I'm just throwing it out there. I, if it wasn't clear, I am in camp. Uh, he was awake and, you know, uh, just going to live his life. You know, one last heist. Those one last heist movies where the, the, bad, the bad guy is going to get out and be clean and, you know, live for his kids legit. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, go legit. Exactly. So, you know, again, like you said, Christopher Nolan plays coy when he's asked this question. I mean, it's been almost 10 years since the film came out. So, you know, he's been asked several times and each time he's like, I don't know. And you're like, yeah, you do. And he's like, I do, but I'm not going to tell you. And in that way, he's very much like um, Quentin Tarantino 
who is a, a genius. Uh, and Tarantino is always asked about his remake of the movie Inglorious Bastards. And they say to him, why did you misspell the word bastards? And he says, well, I could tell you, but I'm not going to. It's more fun if you figure out for yourself. And of course, what he's really saying is even if you think you've figured it out, I'll never tell you if it's right. So I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit of a tool bag about it. But that's fun for me. Yeah, I think it comes with the uh, territory of filmmaking, I suppose. A true auteur gets to have their secrets. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, any other uh, interesting bits of tidbits that you saw in the film? Uh, a few of them. Um, one of them that I think is kind of just amusing is the idea of the kick, right? Where if they chat, if they uh, if they take a person in a dream state and they disrupt their balance, the person will wake up. And if you remember the scene when Arthur is leaning back in his chair and Ariadne asks what a kick is, and then Eames just kicks his chair out for a little bit, then you see Arthur jump. It occurred to me that the kick is basically a myoclonic jerk. Um, uh, sort of. I mean, myoclonic jerks happen when we're falling asleep, not when we're waking up, at least that I'm aware of. But I, I think that the uh, the kick was very similar to a, myoc- uh, a myoclonic jerk uh, from uh, my understanding of consciousness. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that fits with the overall... Uh, idea of what some sort of body movement would be associated with it because if your body starts moving then you're probably not dreaming right because we go into atonia when we are dreaming well, I suppose so if your body's it, it, moving it depends on which of the uh, dream stages we're in but yes generally speaking I'd agree well no when we're dreaming not sleep stages but when, oh, we're, excuse dreaming, me, when we're dreaming yes of course we are, uh, and, and then there's a real disorder, um, REM which, behavior disorder. Uh, yeah, REM behavior disorder, where people begin to act out their dreams because their bodies do not go atonic uh, and lose muscle tone. Uh, it's very, it's it's a really interesting and I uh, really interesting disorder. And every year, or actually every semester. Uh, I talk about sleeps, uh, sleeping and dreaming. That question in uh, inevitably comes up. Um, either somebody knows somebody with uh, REM behavior disorder or uh, they actually have REM behavior disorder. And sometimes it comes up in a way where they actually mistake uh, REM behavior disorder for somnambulism. And they keep saying, well, yeah. you know, sleepwalking is just acting out their dreams. And I say, no, it, it's not. Um, and, right. you know, when you talk to students about dreams, of course, the most common answer is we don't know. And they get a little sick of that. But, you know, as you started our discussion with, we know what we don't know. And it's it's an awful lot when it comes to dreams. Indeed. Uh, any uh, other tidbits? Uh, another one uh, that I think is interesting is the question of whether or not the entire movie is, in fact, actually a dream. And we accept, based on, again, what the director and the actors tell us, that at some points they are dreaming and at some points they are awake. But there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that the entire thing is actually one extended dream. Um Based on some, you know, interesting and convenient action scenes that happen, uh, whether or not those are meant to indicate that they're always asleep, or whether that's just, you know, film play is anybody's guess. Um, uh, but you know, that's another question. One of the things that I think is just cute, and and maybe I'll end with this point tonight, um, 
is if you look at the license plate in one of the dream, in one of the cars during a dream sequence, um, where the state motto or the license plate little cute saying should be like you know in Pennsylvania it says the Keystone State or or whatever, um, the license plate in the dreams says the alternate state, and I thought that that was just absolutely perfect for uh, just a little nod to being you know maybe a little sarcastic uh, flair. Yes, that is, uh, I think, one of the little bits that um, we can kind of giggle at, because that was that was the f- that was the filmmaking team having a little bit of fun. And I'm sure that there are Easter eggs like that all over the place, but um, you know, uh, that's that's part of the fun of watching the movie again is is trying to find more of them because I know that they're there, and I'll be watching the movie again if for no other reason because I like the wah sound right at the beginning. There's another one coming. I want to thank Jason Spiegelman for joining me to discuss Inception on this episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast. While saying goodbye, Jason, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, for those of you who are inclined to travel, or if you live in the eastern part of the country, the Eastern Psychological Association annual conference will be happening this year in Boston, Boston. So come up and pack your cat, have a yad, and come join us. Uh, another, I know, another one that uh, I'm a big fan of is the National Institute on the Teaching of Psychology, which happens in the first year of January each year in St. Pete Beach, Florida. If you have never been, you really should um, uh, but those are those are two that I would mention I could go on and on about other great conferences but those are two that uh, um, are near and dear to me excellent well again Jason thanks for joining me to discuss Inception and hey viewer please share and subscribe to the podcast that would be awesome as I mentioned at the top of the show uh, also I recently learned that Leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. makes us a little bit easier to find. Uh, Gives us a a great footing on those platforms. Uh, So you can um, leave a review. You can give us a rating. um, You can do both or one or the other. I don't... It doesn't really matter to me because that's feedback. I would love that feedback. any platform of your choice would be absolutely lovely. And until the next episode, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>